I think the future of education is going to look a lot like the way we entrepreneurs work. Like the way kids are going to work in schools is going to be similar to the way that we entrepreneurs work. This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's show, we have an edupreneur who has built a company focused on connecting educators to the right curriculum and instructional resources to help their students succeed. Enabling innovation in the future of education, meet Timory Tolney, who is the CEO and founder of EdCuration. Hi, Timory. Welcome to the show. Hi, Les. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Glad to be I, here. I'm, I'm super excited uh, to feature an edupreneur. Is that how you ah, say it? Thank Edu- you. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. I think you're our first edupreneur on the, sh- on the, really? uh, the podcast. Aww. Yeah, so we're really There's excited. a lot more of us. There's well, a lot more of us. <laughs> I'm sure there are. And uh, and you you live in Golden, Colorado. Is that right? I do. Yeah. Yep. Ho- home yeah. of the beautiful Colorado Even... School of Mines, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually love, uh, I got I to gotta say, Colorado, um, Golden, Colorado is one of my one of my favorite places. Um, in fact, if we were there right now, I would, I would have to say, uh, we should, we should have recorded this, uh, floating down the, uh, the clear Creek. I mean, that would have been the clear Creek river. We could could go to the Coors brewery, which I've, I've been here for 20 years and I've still never toured, but I like Coors. Um, (laughs) and, uh, it probably tastes better when you're from golden too, right? It's just like so fresh. Yeah, 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 it's cold. It's cold out here. And then Red Rocks is in Golden, which is we missed, right? So there's lots of great stuff here. I could probably, I got to tell you, I could, we could probably do a whole episode on how awesome Golden is, but <laughs> let's get to something our listeners actually tuned in for and are excited. And that's you. That's your story. Uh, so I'd love to to start off. Why don't you just tell me a little bit about your your background and where you came from and and kind of your 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 story? Yeah. Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California, and I was the first in my family to go to college. And so that meant that not only did I have to go to the university, but I also needed to get, you know, I got work study and had to find a job during college and ended up finding a job tutoring students in the local high schools. I was attending Santa Clara University and working in kind of inner city San Jose, California, and really just developed a love for helping young people learn. And that ended up leading me to become a teacher, uh, which I was for 12 years. And I taught in Orange County in uh, California at the Santa Ana Unified School District, and then got married and moved to Colorado and taught for Denver Public Schools for a while before I uh, kind of moved up the ladder and became a district administrator and then eventually left and uh, became an edupreneur, started a curriculum company, uh, and then and then started curation. Yeah, so always been in education. The full trajectory from tutor to like administrator—that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. What yeah. um, what, when you think back to your teaching career, like what was? Uh, I mean, there's so many great aspects of of teaching, and but what was your favorite part of it? What did you What did you love about teaching? You know what I. Yeah, most people will tell you that they love working with students. They love seeing students, you know, the, the aha light bulbs go on, which is which was true for me too, of course. Um, 
But something that surprised me that really shaped kind of the trajectory of my career is that, you know, when I was first hired to teach, I remember years when I was just kind of thrown in the classroom and like, you know, you have an, I had an English degree, so teach English, you know, and maybe we weren't really given any books or we were given a key to a dusty book room, like pick whatever you want, you know, Uh and there's like, you know, maybe there's 23 copies of the book that you think your students would like to read and that you'd like to teach, but you've got 35 kids in your room. So how are you going to get the rest of the copies that you're missing. And there's not enough know, dusty and, copies. There's never enough. The good books always get like stolen by kids for summer vacation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's as much work going into figuring out like what to teach as there was time spent actually teaching, you know, and, um, and I just thought that's how it was. And then I was working in Denver public schools and they actually purchased a comprehensive kind of curriculum for all the the teachers I was teaching middle school at the time to use. And it was, I had already been teaching, I don't know, maybe eight years or so, but it was the first time I was properly resourced, you know, with some really good materials, some, um, you know, directions for how to teach well, resources for, you know, what the students were going to be reading and doing and cost. And all of a sudden, a couple things happened. My job got way easier because I, I just had to teach the material. I didn't have to think about what to teach and plants. I just, I was provided with what I needed. I just had to teach it. Um, it was all vetted, you know, by the experts in the district and uh, it was great, great stuff. Uh, and my teaching as a result really improved. I became a much better teacher. I always thought I was a good teacher, but I got much better because I had great materials and great resources. And it completely changed my way of thinking about how important those instructional materials are, which really kind of sent me sent me eventually out of the classroom um, to get more great resources into classrooms. Yeah. You, you, you know, you think about it. I mean, teachers have such a tremendous responsibility on a day-to-day basis, just, you know, teaching material, but like sometimes we forget everything else that they have to do to prepare and grading papers. And like, like it's in any job in any other uh, industry. It's like, we, there's always limited resources, there's tools, there's, but like, there's constraints that we have to work around, but it's almost like with teachers, we just expect them to be superhuman <laughs> in some aspects, for right? For sure, for sure. And certainly we have in the last few years, right? Yeah. We'll also get there. during we'll... health protocols. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> about that. We'll get into that. Um, but before we do, uh, I'm curious. So the Colorado move, what was that like coming from Southern California, moving to Colorado? And this was what, around early 2000s that you made the, made the jump? Is that right? It was. Yeah. What was that yeah, like? it was great. It was great. I mean, um, I, you know, I had a good life growing up in California and going to school there and having lots of friends there. But I remember even at the youngest age feeling like the quality of the air pollution or the problem with the air pollution was something that wasn't for me that I couldn't kind of see past and always wanted to live somewhere else. Uh, and so when I had the opportunity to move to Colorado, it, it just kind of check that off. Oh, I'm in a place where I can breathe. It has space. It's beautiful. And consequently, my career did really, you know, it really skyrocketed here. So it was definitely the right move for me. Yeah. It's kind of like you moved from kind of Silicon Valley to the new Silicon Valley, right? Way ahead of your time, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's true. Very cool. And um, what, uh, so we're going to, I want to dive into ed, ed curation, but 
was this the first business you started or was there something before that when you sort of initially jumped there out was something before business? that yeah okay. so i i actually partnered um with the author of that curriculum that denver public schools had purchased and provided for me i had such good luck teaching those materials that um, we kind of went off and started a new curriculum company called Inquiry by Design. They're still around. I was one of the you know, founders of that company. And we wrote and sold, uh, I guess, grades three through 12 English language arts curriculum. Um, in the first year, you know, we sold it into one school district in California that we knew. And then um, by the time six years later came around, uh, we had sold into, I don't know, 45 different districts nationwide that were using it. Um, and so that was a great, a great opportunity that really, uh, taught me about the way materials are bought and sold in schools. And, and I just saw that technology could be leveraged to simplify the selling and the buying and to just make it easier because the amount of time that educators take to perform due diligence, to make sure that when they're buying curriculum, they're buying good stuff is a lot of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a big, messy bureaucratic process. And I just knew technology could make it better. And how is it the status quo at that time? What was it? I mean, is the, are these decisions and work that's typically happening off school cycle, like summer in the summer? So it's probably like a condensed decision. Time Actually, right? well, there, so there's, um, there are, buyers of instructional resources, of course, at the school level and also at the district level. And it varies kind of district by district. Some districts kind of make the majority of purchasing decisions and kind of, you know, give access to the schools to use. And then some districts take their funds and divide them up by schools so schools can make their own individualized, what are called site-based decisions. Um, and so, it's, it's a little bit complicated on who does the buying. I'd say when the school district is buying, they really will take a whole year to two years to really vet the materials. Um, they often buy on cycles, you know, there's always dollars for curriculum. They maybe refresh it every five to 10 years or so, maybe, maybe every seven years, year one and seven, they buy math, years two and eight, they buy reading you know, years three and eight, they buy science, that sort of thing. And it's always kind of a, a schedule. So, uh, but then, you know, different, different places do it different ways. And it, it makes it a little more complicated on, on how it's done and how to sell and, and buy. Interesting. And, and your decision to step away from, I mean, on in the administrator side and, do, and launch this curriculum and professional development sort of company, um, was that, what was the motivation to do that in the first place? Cause that, to me, that seems like a pretty brave or pretty, pretty big step, um, you know, away from, you know, an environment that you spent your entire career up to that point, you know, in, right. You know, Les, I have to tell you, it was for personal reasons, it, not personal that I don't want to tell you what they were, but it wasn't, it wasn't honestly motivated by career. It was a little bit motivated by like, um, you know, quality of life and like family. It was like, um, at that time, I had a, a little maybe one or two year old and I thought I'd like to be able to have more flexibility around her schedule. And, you know, schools, schools give you lots of time off, but they're they're not flexible. It's, it's very like, rigid. You get summer right? off. It's very rigid. Yep. But um, if you, you know, 
wanted to spend different times with your, with, you know, raising your children. And, and so I knew that by starting the curriculum company that I would have more flexibility to be with my daughter a little bit more. Um, it did, it did mean that I was working more. I was working more, but it was flexible work. Uh, and so I, I appreciated that. thought it was good, good for a working mom. For sure. Makes sense. Um, and then what ended up, what happened to the, that company, the curriculum company? Um, so I sold my shares in that curriculum company, um, because, um, I just, I really wanted to kind of, you know, see what was next and, and pursue this idea of leveraging technology to bring buyers and sellers together, um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, to make it easier for them, make it easier for the people selling into schools and easier for the buyers to find the right resources faster. And so that I assume was the kind of the inspiration or the, the problem that you were, you know, solving. For right? sure. Exploration. Very cool. That's right. What, mm-hmm. what about it too? Like where, tell me a little bit more about the problem. Like what, what, what did you, it was what you started, you sought out to solve. Was that really kind of what, what it, what it was or did it evolve over time? The problem I set out to solve, I think we're still figuring out technologically speaking exactly the minute in the weeds ways to make, to solve that problem best for educators. Um, But for sure, it's the same problem. It's the, um, you know, folks that are trying to sell, folks have Ed tech people are developing amazing solutions, amazing ways to teach things, amazing ways for kids to learn, leveraging, you know, the latest and greatest technologies. And so it's difficult for educators to really know the breadth of what's available, um, to know what they should even be considering. It's really easy because, as we talked about, they have so much work to do already that, oh, now I need to buy X, Y, or Z and like, where do I even start? And I have a full-time job as it is. And so I have to, you know, kind of do the research and the due diligence at night or, um, and there was no one place. I mean, educators go to conferences, of course, those were shut down. Um, but they, you know, if, if you travel, if you have the budget to travel to the conference and it works for your schedule, then you might see most of the products that are available there, but not every company can afford to exhibit at these at these conferences too, or they might not choose to. And so there could be really good solutions for your students that you're missing. Um, there was no one place. I mean, you can Google English curriculum, but you get a whole bunch of crazy, crazy stuff. So what we do is we curate the highest quality instructional materials into one marketplace so that educators can search for what they need using the language that they use um, and, and see the results that are available and then compare them against each other, just like you and I would compare a Ford to a, a Toyota to a Honda, we can look on, on a kind of on a spreadsheet uh, at Ed Curation, the educators compare these instructional solutions kind against of, each other. Is it kind of consumer report style, like yeah. certain categories and this gets a half red circle, this gets a full, like that kind of. That's right. That kind of, very cool. And um, the company, uh, tell us about kind of the origin story, the founding story. Was it, is 2018, is that right? When in, when the company was founded? Yes. Yes. So we were founded in, in 2018. It was at the end of 2017. Um, a colleague and I were kind of putting our heads together and, and thinking of new ideas uh, and 
kind of really started spitballing on on this solution. Um, and we actually went to Bozeman, Montana. Um, no way. We actually did. <laughs> yes, she is based out of Bend, Oregon, and I am okay. here in Golden, Colorado. And we said, let's let's brainstorm this idea more. Where's one place that we've never been that we both want to go? And so we we rented this cute little Airbnb in downtown Bozeman and, oh, and stayed incredible. there for a week and and um, how did conceptualized it? creation. How did it size up? I mean, I mean, Bozeman's a great place, obviously. That's where I live. So, you know, I love it. But mm-hmm. I mean, Bend is a great place and Golden, I've already said. <laughs> did it did Bozeman meet your expectations? Like was it okay? Oh, for sure. We loved you? it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, we loved it. Yeah. That's the only so cool. bummer is that it was it was like December or January or something. So it was oh. really cold. But um Oh yeah. But the, was it like 30 but, below probably? <laughs> it was cold. But we did manage to get to a hot spring. Uh, but we sat inside and just brainstormed, you know. Who would have thought it all started in both? <laughs> yeah. So, funny. so what, what came out of that, that session? I mean, was it, it was really just the idea. It was the, it was in the, in the confidence to launch this. Is that. Not exactly yet. What we put together is we had a vision for a solution. We knew what the problem was. We'd lived the problem on both sides. We had bought curriculum, we had sold curriculum. And so we, um, we came up with, you know, in our perfect world, what, did we imagine this tech solution needed to be and needed to have? And so we we brainstormed this whole kind of scope of work, list of functionalities that we then went and shopped around with different developers. And, uh, but we didn't end up actually building from that scope of work. So I'll tell you that story because I think it's it's a good one that other founders can learn from. So, we took that scope of work, we shopped it around. We probably had, you know, through our networks, you know, 10 good prospective builders of the thing, narrowed it down to three that we liked. One builder said it'll cost $100,000 to build what you're envisioning. One said it would cost about 30 and one said it would cost about 10. And we thought- <laughs> What a range. <laughs> what a range, right? We thought 30 was probably like in the right ballpark, you know, Mm -hmm. we thought 10 wouldn't get us enough and 100 was probably gouging us a bit. Um, And we liked the developer that, you know, was quoting us the 30,000. And and in that period of time, we met with a local Golden Accelerator called Traction and they work with some startup companies out of Golden um, to try to help them launch. And they gave us some very important advice, which was, even though you've been living in this, you've been living this problem and you're, you know, industry experts, don't go and build this thing for $30,000 quite yet, you know, with the money in your savings. They said, don't do that. They said, um, build a tiny little prototype, tiny, tiny, even a wireframe, build something small yep. and then go share that thing you build with a hundred potential customers. And so we did. So that great advice, right? So that slowed us down by seven months. Um, But that same developer did build us like a little prototype, you know, it's a functional prototype, real simple. And we were able then to share that um, with 50 different buyers of curriculum and 50 different sellers of instructional materials uh, and get their feedback. And we took copious notes. And from that created a much more robust, comprehensive, solution that we knew would be better received, you know, in the market. And so after that, also, it gave us the time and the confidence to go out and raise 
um, our initial like friends and family round, which we ended up raising, I think 260,000, which we were prepared to kind of fund the 30 K ourselves. But this was a much smarter way to go about things, right? 30K wouldn't have taken us far enough. You know, the 260 let us build the product. It helped us, you know, we could start marketing it. We could start selling it. Uh, and we raised that on a safe. So, you know, so that money got us until we had actual paying customers and then could raise a proper pre-seed round. Excellent. I mean, I, I'm so glad for all of our founders out there that are listening. It's terrific advice. And so many, so many think of it as like a chicken egg problem. Oh, I can't raise the money until I build the product. But I, you know, I, and, but in order to raise the money, I have to have a product. And it's like, no, you get creative, you do something simple, and then you actually can, can, can sort of define the roadmap and the requirements for what you want. How wrong were you, by the way? Cause that's always a surprise too. It's like, I thought they wanted X and they actually wanted uh, a, B, C, D, E, F, G, like how, how wrong or right was kind of your initial stab? Well, our initial stab just wasn't comprehensive enough. It was uh, too simple. Yep. And all of the users were informing details that kind of just rounded out the final solution in a way that, that was much more useful than to the users. That makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Very cool. And where, um, so once you, you finally, so you raised the seed round uh, or the pre-seed or the friends and family round, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then you said that was a safe, what, what, what's the timing of all this? Like in terms of when the, when you're able to raise the pre-seed round after that, how many? Yeah. Many so let's, let's see. We, I think we, we raised that friends and family in this kind of by the summer of 2019. Okay. And by fall of 2020, we had our first close on, on the pre-seed round. Nice. Um, and then we had a second close, uh, I guess, maybe in 2021. And so that kind of pre-seed round came in at 660000 I think. So from 260 to 660. And, um, and then after that, we managed to get a grant from the state of Colorado for 250,000. That definitely has been super helpful. Non-dilutive um, is always a good source. Non-dilutive, yes. At the heat stage. Yeah. Gotta love Colorado. I don't, you know, maybe I would have been as supported in California, but I don't, I don't think so. I feel like this state has really gotten behind me as a founder and our mission-driven company and women-led organizations. And it's been great. I got to tell you, it's consistent on this podcast. We hear it every episode. I mean, it's funny. All, a lot of episodes, even where the founders aren't in Colorado, they like pass through on their way to Utah or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So the Colorado comes up a lot, but this is so consistent with what we hear. A great state, mm -hmm. highly supportive of entrepreneurs and has mm -hmm. been pretty much mm -hmm. for forever. Well, since, since the beginning. The beginning. Tech. tech in Colorado. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Yeah. So where, so I'm, so the, the platform's built, you've got some kind of early customers, I assume. Who were they? Who were the first customers that, that said, we want to use this? Or how did you, you know, our, I, well, I don't know if it was our very first, but one of the, one of the first five um, is still with us today. They're called reading plus. They're the, probably one of the biggest um, reading intervention programs in the market. So basically, and so they, have online reading support for kids grades three through 12. So mm -hmm. once kids should be able to read if they're behind, 
they can log into Reading Plus and get um, digital support. Uh, and so kind of like, you know, it can be used as an intervention. So, you know, a certain population of kids are doing maybe the regular reading instruction. And then the ones that are a little behind can do reading plus and catch up. And the, they say that their kid, the kids catch up like a whole year's worth of reading after 26 hours of use or something. So it's a real, real way to speed up kids that are behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And, and what have you found, you know, there's always a difference between, you know, getting feedback from people that aren't paying, suddenly you switch on the, you know, the product's real. Now they're paying customers. What, uh, from the entrepreneur's perspective, what's changed, what's gotten, you know, more challenging, more exciting. This is an interesting one. We're still working this one out. So, um, <laughs> that's okay. For, for anyone that's listening, that's, um, you know, building a marketplace, what I did, especially because, you know, we knew we were going to be um, venture funded from the beginning. Uh, we had a, a small, small bit of resources that my co-founder and I were able to put our money in, you know, in the beginning together. But we knew it would never be enough to really build this thing. And so we all, when you do that, when you take in, you know, investor money, you you have to show growth. You have to, you know, use that. You have to generate and and show progress and, and all of that. And quickly, right? You, you need to show like right away that you're bringing in revenue. Um, so we intentionally picked a business model that we knew would, in, um, would generate revenue quickly. So what we did was we've got, we've got this marketplace, we've got sellers and buyers, um, and we knew it would be faster to charge the sellers to market through the marketplace that then to charge the buyers when they finally decided to buy and it would take longer to like build the buyers you know trust and and comfort with this new way to purchase and, and so couldn't, couldn't you also stand to if you're a buyer you could if the mo- if the payment model is on the buyer they could kind of circumvent by just using the marketplace to discover totally. and then go buy direct right so that doesn't totally. work yeah totally. interesting interesting and that's an, i mean that's just as much of the reason that we chose the business model that we did. Yep. And it was, and it worked for the goals that we set. Like we were able, you know, we had revenue month one, you know, and it, and it went up, you know? Um, And I I gotta (laughs) ask though, did it, did it create sort of a strange incentive where it's like a pay to play? Like, in other words, the, the sellers that are paying, like you have to feature them. Right. But what if they're not the best or what if they're not fully vetted or how, like, I, I could imagine there could be some complexity navigating that too. There's complexity, but I feel like we solved that problem um, in a couple ways. What we did is we allowed, first of all, we preceded the marketplace with products that we had great respect for having been in the industry for a long time. Um, and we, we kind of gave, visibility every company can have one product on the marketplace for free but in order to put additional products and in order to you know get leads sent to them directly then they need to pay so and then we developed an algorithm that promotes the kind of most efficacious products the products that have the most evidence behind them for dramatically improving student learning so paid products show up before unpaid products but better performing products show up before, you know, paid poorly performing products, if you will. So, so 
we solve that through our algorithm. But the, the challenge then is that when you have all these sellers that have paid to play, if they don't get the ROI in the first year, because you're new, you know, that from what they paid, then then they they don't reinvest and churn goes up, which isn't great. Um, and so now that we've been around for two and a half years, we're in this place where we have to put all of our energy now on bringing the educators. We're always doing that. Sure. But but more aggressively, right? Yeah. Um, than than and to kind of balance that out. So that makes sense. I did read. Um, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. I was just gonna say I read from uh, a marketplace building expert recently that, which I hadn't read when I started, but I just recently read it. That said, um, focus on the side of the marketplace that's hardest to convert first. And I didn't do that. I focused on the the side that was easiest to convert. Yeah. Um, was that the cold, so star, now, cold star problem, Andrew Chen? Is that the book? Uh, uh, it was. It was like a little blurb, probably something oh, okay. on online on LinkedIn or something. But anyway, that's a good one if you haven't Andrew Chen. And okay. for your listeners out there that are trying to create network effect products and marketplaces, the cold start problem by Andrew Chen. Okay. And Andrew, if you're listening to the podcast, like it and subscribe. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's a big deal. Uh, great, cold great investor, start. and um, but very, very knowledgeable on the subject. Um, anyway, it probably is that. Yeah, I bet you it is. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, what about uh, so we, we talked about some of the challenges. Now you got to grow, grow the you know the buyer side. Um, what about growing the team? How's that been? Mm-hmm. Hiring, hi, and hiring and growing my, during COVID too, right? Let's not forget it's that. It's such my favorite part of leading a company. You know, it was my favorite part of my last company and my favorite part of this company. And what I think is kind of my um, my special gift is attracting and motivating talent for sure. And for me, the the methodology is to just love all over and give nothing but, you know, kudos and confidence into my team to be able to do what needs to be done. Um, I rarely have people leave. Uh, I mean, I don't even know if I've had anybody leave because they wanted to leave. Um, sometimes we've switched. <laughs> sometimes it's just strategies. They always know? leave like, because they don't want to leave. <laughs> I know what that means. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me about uh, that. Yeah, tell me about that. I mean, it sounds like you could make good, hire, fast hiring decisions. You're that kind of leader, huh? Well, you kind of have to be, right? I mean, because you, you, you're trying to, you, you know, you need to demonstrate growth and you need, we do a really good job here of tracking our goals and our progress to our goals each week. And so, you know, if it's not working out with a, you know, certain employee who I've given all the, you know, confidence in the world that they can do it. Um, you know, some, sometimes you just have to pull the plug and, and move quickly. And sometimes it's, it's not even as much their performance as like, we engage this strategy, but it didn't render the results we wanted to do. So now we're going to engage this strategy and, the person leading this other strategy isn't right for the next strategy. And so, and um, I think they understand, um, you know, I always support them in their efforts to find the next position for them, um, you know, but we have a, we have a really good team right now and it, it feels so good. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Well, I'm glad you said that because two takeaways for me, I mean, number one, for founders that are listening, just recognizing the importance of that, because it's very much a startup thing. Like this isn't, you know, this isn't a thousand person enterprise company that has like resources to carry dead 
no, dead weight's the bad word. I, but you know, it's, it's different in a startup environment. You have to, you have to be efficient, right. With your people and capital quickly. And, yeah. And you have to do it quickly because yes. ultimately that's, what's best for everyone, right? That's how you survive and win. Like that's how you make it to, yeah. an, you know, to the next fundraise and, and so on. So I'm, I'm glad you, you highlighted that because I think it's important. Um, six and, and in the end, the number two, the other thing is now you have a great team. Like you said it, like when you're <laughs> willing to do that, you end up with greatness. So awesome. Yeah. Uh, what about, uh, just kind of any, any other challenges, uh, to highlight for early stage founders out there that, you know, you just, just to give them a, give them a, a vote of confidence to keep pushing through. Like, what do you, what have you, what's worked for you when things get hard and what are some of the challenges you've faced? You know, I mean, one thing that all founders that raise capital will tell you is that it's just so hard and it's so stressful because it means like either go or no go, right? Like I, we are, we're either going to do this or not going to do this. And, and sometimes you're like halfway there and it just feels like it's taking forever and you don't know how you're going to get to the next level. And that was definitely how I felt for definitely the first three years of working on this is like, am I going to be able to raise? And we're, you know, we're kind of closing up a little bridge round right now. And, and then we'll, we'll raise a proper uh, seed round soon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the best time in the economy. I recently had a, Never a is. <laughs> I had you know, a honestly, investor on the line. I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Cause it's something we haven't talked about on the show yet, but you know, people think like, Oh, now's a bad time to raise. But the difference is now, you know, I would argue a year ago or 18 months ago, boy was raising easy boy were valuations easy, but boy, was that a bad time to raise because now you're so far out in front of your skis. Good luck catching up. So it's like, it makes the next time harder when things are grounded and when things are normal, now might be a great time to raise. If you're, you're, good you're a great founder you've got a good company like you shouldn't have any problem raising and now's a good time to raise so i don't know i just we'll got to challenge we'll you on see. that we'll see. Yeah. I, I mean i do have i had one you know lead investor very interested in leading this next round who like the whole firm put the brakes on making any investments hopefully that's short hopefully that's short-lived but uh but i don't feel that same like oh no will i make it now i feel like i'll do it i don't know when i don't know exactly how but I've done it before, you know, two or three times. I'll do it again. You know, you got this. You got this, Timory. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Les. What? Uh, any fun highlights? Like plans for the future? Exciting things? Other? Obviously, got the fundraise coming up. But um, anything else fun? Or or maybe macro strategy or mission? Like, what do you wanna? What do you wanna change in the world with 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 Ed Curation with this solution? Gosh, I feel like I'm so in the weeds that. Um... <laughs> That that the things I'm excited about are probably boring to your listeners. No, it's like, but it's it's cool though because you know you you adopt the MVP philosophy, right? Like build the smallest thing that you can sell and make money off of, right? Like make it simple and and then learn from it and then grow from there. And so we really built like something kind of basic, you know, that works and that does what it's supposed to do and has a lot of curriculum on there and educators can come and shop and all that works. And, and now we've just gone from where before we had like, you know, math, English, history, science, for example, to now we have like algebra, geometry, 
you know, um, fractions, like, like just getting so much more detailed in our ability to fine tune and, and, you know, make more unique offerings. So yeah. we're excited about that. Yeah. You know, I think about the song, you know, reading and writing and arithmetic, like that used to be it, right? That was, yeah, yeah. That was curriculum, but you're right. There's like, there's so many fragments now and so much of it crosses over channels, right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. You know, I mean, it's all it all starting to blend. So sounds like we need to curate it a little bit. It sounds like we it need to like curate it. We need time. one place where we can go and and find the best teaching resources. And um, and it. so teachers can get back to teaching and administrators can get back to running schools and they're not spending time shopping. You know, they're just it's <laughs> fast and easy. Right. It's like when I need something and I go to Amazon, it's like right there. It's like, you know, yep. like, I know they're going to have it. Although I do like to shop yep. local for just, just to be clear. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so my last question for you today um, is one that uh, I'm curious to get your perspective on as a, as a career educator, as somebody, as an edupreneur who is innovating and changing the, changing uh, the status quo. What do you think the future of education looks like? How does it change? How does it evolve? And, you know, I, I assume it's not a doomsday. I assume it's like an exciting thing for you, but like, what is it? Like, what does it look like? And why does it make you exciting, excited? I think the future of education is going to look a lot like the way we entrepreneurs work. Like the way kids are going to work in schools is going to be similar to the way that we entrepreneurs work. Um, and so let me give you this example. When you and I went to school, we probably sat in desks in rows, right? Oh, yeah. You know, and had paper and pencil and like did what we were told, you know. Yep. And, and if we did it wrong, a nun would hit us with a ruler. Yes. Totally. On our, <laughs> on our, on our knuckles, right? You're right, exactly. Yes. And, uh, but now, you know, more, I don't know the percentage yet of schools that have one-to-one, -one, you know, one device per kid, but pretty soon every school, every child mm -hmm. will have a device for their learning. And what that enables, it actually enables schools to save money on HR because, you know, today everybody's trying to reduce class sizes. What about a future that looks like, honestly, like my co-working space, which some schools are starting to build by the way, or buy these co-working spaces for kind of like high school kids wow. and the kids have their own devices and they have kind of like their own playlist of personalized learning plans for them based on their interests, based on their skills. So if they need that, you know, extra 30 minutes of reading support, they get that. But the other kid that really wants to go do something with robotics, they can go do that. And there's actually fewer teachers. There's fewer teachers that are maybe more highly skilled, maybe with more like teacher's assistants, yep. you know, TA, and maybe those TAs are high school kids or college students, right? I mean, I think there's ways to get, um, to improve the economics of schools, to make it more affordable, but actually do it a lot better and give kids more freedom and agency and engagement. Um, it's a really, it's really exciting opportunity. My daughter's school, they just bought a co-working space to, to ha house some learning like this. And so, so cool. yeah. Such a brilliant, mm -hmm. I love it. Such a brilliant vision. And I got to say, I kind of want to go to school in the future. It sounds like it <laughs> right. sounds like I'm missing out. It sounds so for fun. Sure. Very mm -hmm. cool. Well, Timory, I just got to thank you again so much for being on the show. Um, I think I speak for all of our listeners. So excited for what you're doing as an edupreneur, 
in Colorado, in Golden. Um, and just to conclude, could you please tell our audience uh, where they can find you and Ed Curation online? Sure. Well, you can Google it. We'll come up pretty fast. But edcuration.com <laughs> is uh, is the marketplace for anything that anyone in a school or school district needs to buy for, to support student learning. Uh, edcuration.com. And we're on LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all the things. So thanks. We'll see you there. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Les. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.